Hi there chaps, it's your friendly neighbourhood atypical anaesthetist A squared here. So today we have a very special guest. He's here to talk about his work um, in community, specifically women's welfare. Um, how he started out, what kind of uh, what led him to uh, deal with this issue. Uh, what the scale of the problem is within uh, both the Muslim community and the wider uh, British community, what kind of facilities are available, how to spot someone who is in uh, need. Um, I hope you find the uh, discussion uh, enjoyable and I hope you learn um, how to spot maybe some of the signs that someone is in trouble and know where to go. Hi guys, uh, welcome to the uh, uh, today's ex- episode of the Atypical Anaesthetist um, and uh, it's been titled Women's Hour which is a, a little bit of a pun um, since there's not actual women on this uh, call but I do have um, a very special guest, a very uh, a friend of mine and also someone, a uh, respected member of the community, Dr. Uh, Fahad Ali. Uh, so, uh, Assalamu alaikum Dr. Fahad and uh, uh, how's uh, lockdown and COVID treating you? Well, thanks, uh, thank you for having me on your show. Um, it's it's an honour to be asked to join. Um, yeah, lockdown's been okay for me personally. Um, it's, uh, it's not something that's, you know, kind of does affect me in terms of not getting out the house as you know, my friends kind of can you know, testify to. But um, it's one of those things that brings on these different challenges. And, um, you know, it's also brought along, you know, quite a few benefits in different ways for other people. So, yeah, it's been okay. Okay, that's good. Uh, n- n- nice to uh, know that, you know, you've been, make, been, been productive. I'm sure a lot of us have tried to be productive and have uh, failed uh, uh, miserably. Um, so, I mean, we, uh, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, we uh, sort of go back um, a long way in the sense that our fathers knew each other, but we were never really friends until um, more recently. Um, and I understand you work as a GP uh, at the moment. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Um so kind of took the long route around, did a chemistry degree first. Um, during that, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I thought chemistry would be a, a decent degree to kind of keep options open, but then decided to go into medicine. So, yeah, um, I, was, I was lucky to kind of realise during chemistry that actually I did want to be a doctor and, um, yeah, find my calling. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sure your uh, parents would have been relieved. We all know what Asian parents <laughs> are like. <laughs> yeah. yeah they'll tell you some stories about nightmares at night and not knowing exactly you know what what's happening with their son because he's not being a doctor or dentist but yeah yeah it's kind of like cannot compute cannot compute you know um i i often i am i was always a a skeptic personally of these kind of asian careers you know if i want to put it in inverted commas you know 
you must become doctor, you must become dentist, accountant, whatever. Although I must say, the COVID pandemic has shifted my perspective because a lot of these uh, professions are, um, you know, they're, uh, they're not exactly, but they're kind of recession proof in a sense, aren't they? You're always going to need a doctor. You're always going to need a dentist or an accountant or a lawyer. You know, even yeah. if the country is falling apart, you might not necessarily need a graphic designer. You know, that's that's very true. Um, I mean, traditionally, sort of in olden times, and I, uh, you know, olden times, you know, we usually talk about you know five hundred years ago or so. We always go back to that because I feel that the olden times had things a lot more right than wrong compared to us. Um, I think we've, you know, one of the things we've done is is technology has speeded up um you know life and um, I, I can't remember who quoted this but there's a quote that um you know we're we're a, a planet that doesn't know where it's going but we're, but we're um, determined to break a speed record getting there <laughs> and the, the world is moving fast and it's changing so much and I, I think anyone who's got kids can just see the difference between mobile phones and things like, like I didn't have a mobile phone until I was 19 and that was only because I had to yeah um, you know, same here. There, there wasn't a choice at that point um, because there were no friends in uni and that was the only way to contact family yeah so you know it, times have changed but yeah going back to the sort of the 500 year thing um, I always kind of go back to that so um, it's it's one of these things of traditionally doctors and teachers were the two most respected members of the community. Um, one because they preserve uh, they preserve your health, and the other one because they educate you. In other words, one gives you your health, your life, and the other one gives a meaning to your life. But we do see what's happened with teachers nowadays, um, and you know they they really do don't earn much. They they aren't. Um, I mean, they're they're very disrespected. And yeah, I th I think they're very undervalued uh, by society at large, and I I can't, you know, considering the amount of uh, mental cognitive ability that's required to be a teacher, you know, teach children, mark things, and you know the kind of the cognitive load that you have. You know, and the frankly ridiculously low pay for it. You know, why would someone do it really? You know, when yeah. there are other careers available. Exactly, and this is one of the the issues is is that people don't want to do it, and then they have people who actually sign up to be a teacher only because they there's now a thirty thousand pound incentive to do the course, and you know when you're needing to pay people to become teachers. Um, it, it just shows that obviously the quality of people, generally speaking, of course, you know, who go in um, are, are not the kinds of people who maybe are at the level that we look at. And I think Finland is a, is a really good example of that, where um, the Finland education system, they felt, was really in a huge amount of trouble and they didn't really know what to do. So they just reset everything. They scrapped exams, they scrapped everything and they, they decided to build from the bottom up. And by scrapping the exams and then saying that all teachers have to have at least a master's degree and go on from there. Um, while they were doing all of that, they actually, their education system became number one in Europe. And that was 
not even when they'd really started doing what they wanted to do. And the reason is, is because number one, they took the pressure off the kids. They actually let the kids dictate what they wanted to do. So the kids would be like, yeah, I want to do maths today or I want to do art today. But really, they put no pressure on them. And what they found is, is the kids were asking to be taught. They were asking to learn. And that's something, you know, which we just don't see nowadays in, you know, in England, unfortunately. Um, and so that happened. But then not only that, but the level of people who wanted to become teachers also increased because you needed a master's. And, you know, it's it, it was amazing how it just literally went from very low to number one. Um, and it, it's kind of a it, it's kind of well known. Um, the story of Finland in terms of the education system, because it was just a complete flip of what generally happens, you know, throughout Europe. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I find that the education system in this country is uh, quite regressive. Um, you know, we're uh, especially with the administrations that we've had, we're you know going back to a more exam and uh, assessment orientated model rather than a skills and competence model. Um, um, yeah, and, I, and, I, and I think a lot of that is political and there's also the I think there's also a culture difference in that um, I mean I don't know the Nordic countries particularly well but um, I, I you get the idea that their attitude towards learning and attitude towards teaching and other social aspects is very different to attitudes in this country i mean if you told a kid who is seven years old what do you want to learn today you've got a choice he'll probably just say i want to want to go home and play on my xbox you know there's a there's a definite cultural element to it um I, I, i'm not sure how to uh answer that question um but one question that I uh, and what sparked my um, interest as well as speaking to a friend um, <clears throat> for today's podcast was the fact that you have been um, involved in um, women's welfare. Uh, I know uh, with with the busy schedule that you have at the moment and with uh corona you know though a lot of that has taken the back back seat um but yes you've been involved in um uh, as i said women's welfare um now with this kind this kind of stuff is quite quite stigmatized in asian communities how did you get there how did you get into a situation where you wanted to help Okay, so, um, okay, so really looking at it, it's not something that was ever out of my mind, I would say. Um, as I said, one of the, the reasons I became a doctor is because I just realized that it's just part of my nature to always remember those who are in need um, and not really ever being able to exclude them from my thought process. So when anything um, bad would happen to me, I, I would just naturally um, be able to remember people who go through a lot worse and when good things would happen i would always remember those people who are again going through a lot worse to not be overjoyed um because i would always remember so that that was one thing in my mind but what actually really triggered me to actually do something was um i used to attend some islamic classes and there was um 
there was one um, girl who used to come to the classes. Now, you know, I didn't know her, but what it was is um, she had met someone and she was getting married and, you know, she was kind of leaving the class. So the teacher kind of, you know, gave a kind of farewell and all of this. But also part of giving the farewell, um, he he mentioned a few things that, you know, the, you know, we weren't aware of. And I think very few people were aware of who would attend those classes. And that is that um, she actually went through quite a lot of difficulty in terms of um, she wouldn't have much money for even electricity. She used to, you know, in the freezing cold, she used to walk to classes um, because she didn't have transport. And she used to actually really um, put herself out to attend these classes. Now, there's a lot of people there who would maybe miss a class because they're tired or maybe wouldn't attend as regularly or wouldn't take them as seriously. But then there's someone here who would, you know, really pursue and strive to make those classes despite how difficult it was. And not only that, but there were a lot of days she didn't have much food and so forth. And it kind of struck me that although, you know, yes, I didn't know this person and of course, how was I meant to know the situation? The fact that every week there was someone coming who was in that situation and I didn't know about it and I couldn't do anything to help because I didn't know. So I just felt that that was not right. And so from that, I, we, um, you know, kind of got a few people together um, and just kind of helped, you know, her out in terms of her and her husband because he wasn't someone who earned a lot of money. So we just helped what we could. And then from that, we kind of decided to have a small group within the class just to, um, you know, be there, that if anyone else needed help, that we were a group that could be contacted and we would do what we could. But this old pots and pans, this and that, we all know people, so each of us would know, you know, lots of other people who the other ones didn't know, and hence we could just kind of put the word out there and see what we could do. And that's what started me getting into this. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So how did... Um, uh, um... I'm assuming the Islamic classes that you're referring to are the ones with uh, Sheikh Dr. Asim Yusuf. Yes, um, that's right. Yes, um, for, for listeners who don't know, he's a consultant psychiatrist, but also a um, a religious scholar. Um, does uh, Did used to do regular classes. I think he's doing a lot more academic work now. A definite benefit to the community. And if uh, I highly recommend anybody who is... Um, in the black country area um, and you know wants uh, some spiritual learning and spiritual guidance to seek him or his institute uh, out um, so I've done a mandatory plug for you there Fahad okay. uh, <laughs> um, well, but, but the, the one thing I will say though is, is that um, is that the one thing that the classes did teach everyone was um, the true kind of spirit of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, Islam is, you know, it is the rules and regulations. But all those rules and regulations are there to achieve what is primary in the Sharia, which is preservation of life and preservation of health for you, your family, and everyone else. Mm-hmm. And this is a message which he really invites. So, you know, I can't say that this wouldn't have happened without his influence. Um, you know, we never know and all these things, but it definitely didn't deter me from doing anything like this. So yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. 
Yes, I mean, and, and, and I find that dynamic quite quite interesting actually, because um, <clears throat> if you look at um, Islamic learning nowadays, it's uh, it's a kind of austere um, academic pursuit. Um, you know, learning of texts, learning um, language in in the case of Arabic. Um, and things like that you know there isn't the kind of community uh kind of welfare aspect uh to it uh or at least there isn't the perception of that when um yet when you look back in history and you look at when we're both from uh our roots are both from india um you know the spread of islam in the subcontinent was predominantly by uh you know people we would now call sufis but basically people who were there to care for people who were trying to help people who were trying to um uh, as they would say in um, urdu khidmat khalq you know um recognizing that uh, you are you are god's creation and so is everything else and so you have a responsibility to help God's creation if you want God's favor. Um, and so it's nice to see that that hasn't completely disappeared in the kind of more polemical and confrontational uh, Islamic landscape that we now find ourselves in in the 21st century. So, um, kudos to uh, 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 Sheikh Asim uh, for, uh, for, for, for imbibing that kind of culture within you uh, and your people. Um, anyway, so, uh, I, sorry, I, I interrupted uh, your uh, story. So, after this had happened, uh, you know, within the kind of informal network within uh, your class uh, how did this then become a wider thing so um, from there I you know I was looking at situations in general um, and it, it's kind of well known to most of us that one of the the most transgressed rights of a woman are, is you know domestic abuse yeah um, now you know so I thought well if we're going to do something um, that we need to kind of step it up. Now, you know, the different people within the class um, are kind of all have their things going on, um, not just in terms of their home lives, in terms of how busy they are, their jobs um, and so forth, but also in terms of helping others. You know, they, they've kind of got their own setups going on here or there, whether it's kind of part-time or whether it's a more regular thing um so for me i felt that it, this was something i wanted to do where i could help um, women who have suffered through domestic abuse um and also um part of that was is, is really asking the question is there a need for it because there, it's almost like if you if there's no need for it why in reinvent the wheel so to speak why go out there and just be another name out there to help others but with domestic abuse constantly increasing, um, that became an issue. So I, I did look into various foundations and institutes that do help um, 
know, women of domestic abuse. Um, and one of them, which is unfortunately now closed down, was the Mira Foundation. Now, I did want to really kind of be part of the Mira Foundation for the, the, the work that they were doing, which was, you know, fantastic. They helped a lot of people out. Um, <clears throat> the, the issue I had was is I wanted something a bit more hands-on. And the reason is because is I've always found that when you're more hands-on, the, the experiences are more transformative. And that was part of it, really. Um, I wanted this to be something that would transform me as a better person as well, not just for the work I'm doing, but from a spiritual state, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to go it alone, as opposed to being part of the Emir Foundation and under their flag, so to speak. But also part of that was is, is because I'm someone who has always um, had the ability to counsel people um, and sort of help them. Um, and so with that, one of the things is I don't have any diplomas and I don't have, you know, any official, you know, um, titles or anything like that regarding counselling or even um, have studied it. Although when I've helped people, I've been I've able to help them. So with that, um, to make everything official would be very difficult. So. In terms of the charity, most of the funds that I, I did raise did go to the Amira Foundation. Um, some of them, um, you know, stayed with me, you know, for people who'd come to me directly or I'd hear about. And, um, yeah, that's really how it went, you know, from there on. How did you... Um, how did people... Yeah, I'm trying to phrase this correctly. How did you know... Who needed help? Okay, so I mean that was just very simple um, because it was only me, and instead of having a group of us, um, I kept it to just me because I wanted I wanted things simple. I've got bu- yeah busy life. I've got lots of other things going on. I didn't want this to be growing exponentially, and then me not being able to cope with what was happening. So I kept this very small, and I thought, well, the smaller it is, the better. If no one's coming through, I'm not hearing any words from people in terms of help. I could always expand it a little bit more. But once it's out there and expanded and people are hearing a lot about it, if it ever got to that stage, then obviously it's very difficult to manage. So I went small and I just basically put this out there to people in the class, a few other people I knew, and kind of just said, if you know anyone, um, just, you know, I'm someone who could help um, whatever the situation is, and then kind of go on from there. So I, I just kept it small. It's just word of word, word of mouth, really. Okay. So what kind of help did you provide? So um, it, it was pretty much, um, I mean, okay, so it would start off from um, signposting, really, would be the first thing. So if there was anyone who contacted me regarding a situation where they needed to get out, there's certain things that we need to look for um, that is... Um, regarding them actually having access to get out. Um, certain things like having a bit of money put aside, having a passport available so that if they do run out, they've got their passport, um, you know, a set of clothes, um, someone like their neighbour actually knowing the situation because, you know, those things can come up um, later on, especially when it comes to children and when it comes to, you know, the word of the guy versus the word of the girl. You know, um, although the Lord does favour women to a certain degree, 
these men who do these things, generally speaking, are quite manipulative. And so they, they've already got plans in their head that if someone finds out or if they go to the police, I've got my story, um, you know, and I've got evidence here that she does, you know, she's a little bit crazy or, you know, whatever they may accuse the women of. Um, so there's certain things like that. Then also it'd be about other, um, you know, helplines and so forth they could call. Okay. Now, in terms of uh, from a practical perspective, so that would be sort of the emergency type things that would come up that women who want to, you know, who are thinking about escaping. In terms of women who did want to actually escape, that was where the Emir Foundation came in, and we could always signpost them to them. And they had the whole setup in terms of their housing, they had an anonymity where basically, you know, you, you won't know who they are, they change their name and so forth. So they had that whole setup. Um, and then it went on to other things like the finances, um, what they could claim, what they couldn't, um, what financial help they could get. Um, certain people I knew would know more about those things than me, so then I could always signpost them there. But then the kind of next step from that was kind of the long-term effects, um, the just general support that if they do need anything, there's someone here who, who can help. And that was one of the biggest issues that a lot of these women had is that they didn't have anyone they could really turn to um they didn't have anyone they could trust and at the same time they shouldn't you know be trusting me either but because the initial help was completely um you know devoid of any benefit to myself and that was very clear there was a little bit of trust there and that trust would generally just build up over time really and um, which would then lead to kind of the more kind of counseling-esque type stuff of just you know talking to them and just kind of helping them through the difficulties okay um would you think that the the gender difference between you know you know you're a bloke these are women mm. okay yeah. um do you think that was an obstacle uh, um to be honest i didn't find it as an obstacle but it definitely should have been an obstacle um at, completely now it's a very common question that I have asked. So, um, so breaking down what I was doing a little bit more is that the reason why it was called the Women's Support Fund is because actually at that time when I set it up, um, the Amir Foundation or other foundations didn't actually have support for men. And it was only actually about two months after I'd set up, you know, the, the I, I wouldn't call it a business, but the organization. Um, only then did actually... Um, the Amir Foundation and some other places actually have uh, a men's abuse um, category, so to speak, where they had the support for men. Yeah. So actually my support was for both. It wasn't just for women. Mm -hmm. but the way it was set up, just to avoid all complications, I, I basically called it the Women's Support Fund, and basically that's all, all I was offering, of, you know, um, funding for women who had gone through domestic abuse. That was officially the only thing I was doing. After that, it was kind of whatever was needed i would try and help as much as i could so th that definitely should have been an element but the one thing i do say as well is that um this is a area where even if i wanted to set up something i felt that i shouldn't have been allowed to because there were so many other women and other people other groups who are so into this in terms of they're setting their thing up it should be completely saturated 
you know, it, it's just there wouldn't be any need for me or anyone else, really, because there's just so many women who are out there doing this. Unfortunately, they're not, though. And this is one of my disappointments but concerns, is that, you know, these women ideally need um, as much support as they can. And naturally speaking, obviously, because, you know, I'm a man, and generally it's, it's men who have, you know, been doing the domestic violence, they would feel a little bit more uncomfortable with me. But because it was kind of a no-lose situation for them, you know, they hadn't, they, they had nothing to lose. I wasn't asking for money from them. I wasn't, you know, I didn't know where they lived. I mean, you know, it's basically literally kind of just advice. And so in that respect, they had nothing to lose by, you know, talking to me. Um, so, yeah, so with that, it, it was kind of one of those things of it should have been more of an, I, I would have expected it to be more of an obstacle, but I think some of these women were just so desperate talking to anyone, um, you know, who could give advice or help them. Um, you know, whether financially, financial advice, whether financially itself, etc. You know, they would just take it because they were in real, you know, desperate situations. Why do you think that the, uh, the the women you're mentioning, or maybe the maybe the Muslim community in at large, have been very uh, reticent, basically slow to the game on this. Um, well, I mean, talking about Muslim communities and talking about other communities, so to speak, it, it becomes very difficult because Muslim communities, they fall into the um, ethnic minority group. Um, now, the thing is, what you'll find is, is in, in all ethnic minorities, domestic abuse is dispor uh, disproportionately high um, compared to other communities. Um, and... But the thing is, what the research kind of have found is that's usually due to long-standing structural inequalities within those groups. And so actually it becomes it becomes difficult to just speak specifically about Islamic, you know, from an Islam point of view. But if we are to say that, um, it's, I'm not too sure, to be honest. I can't say 100% definitively. But one thing I would say is, is that just like with depression, and just like with mental health, where generally the Islamic community are behind in a big, big way, I think it's the same with this. Um, I think it's just something which, from a cultural point of view, as opposed to an Islamic point of view, these things are kind of preferred to be buried a little bit. Yeah, brushed under the carpet, as it were. Yeah, and this is, as I said, specifically from a cultural point of view. Um, not an Islam point of view, because an Islam point of view is if there's domestic abuse going on, it is your duty as a Muslim to report it, full stop, end of story. There's no you know, yeah. ifs or buts. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a cultural thing. And also it's, it's the whole idea of it's not something that's often done. And so maybe there's a lot of hesitancy in getting it done. Although I think that's changing a lot. Um, I think it is starting to pick up quite a bit. Okay. Part of that is probably because domestic abuse is uh, a lot more prevalent than it was. Yeah, I mean, is it is it also do you think a uh, a factor of uh, female empowerment in the sense that if you look at the okay, let's just say as a from an ethnic perspective, the Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, South Asian communities, you know, a lot of the women. Uh, before were you know uh, from abroad 
maybe had limited language um limited uh language skills etc whilst now we're you know second third fourth in some cases even fifth generation in integrated into the mainstream and so they have a you know they have they know where to go or they know that there's things available and they can access that do you think that's a a, a factor I, I think yes i think that's definitely a factor i think part of it is is that um we we look at our communities and you know that is i guess is more the older generation would say look how the western society have influenced you know our, our children so to speak um now they say that in a negative light but there's also a positive to it and one of the positives is this where actually domestic abuse is not okay and if someone if your husband is hitting you it's not okay um mm. so then you know they can they then act on it they have more of a inclination to act on it and more, more of a desire to act on the fact that it's happening to stop it happening as opposed to before um this used to go on and it was just accepted this was it's like sometimes so how i mean you mentioned that they were signposting towards other uh, organizations uh what about within uh the the wider uh society you know i mean there are uh women's refuges and um you know things which are run by you know multiple organizations um would you you be or had you any experience with them and did you sign post towards them so yes i mean i saw there's a few organizations who are contacted before um just to kind of ask them um if you know basically number one is the donations the donations i wanted to spread out as far as possible so whichever organization seemed to be able to you know use that money to spread further to help as many people as they could that was generally what i went for um so i did speak to them a little bit but also f- from the perspective of referring so to speak um you know women to them you know just a bit of a talk and a lot of these places they they seem very very good um you know they just they just seem very straightforward they're there for genuine reasons um you know and unfortunately as i said with all charities there's always possibility of individuals um taking advantage of the situation as there is money being passed through them um but that that is you know that's not specific to women's abuse charities um and things like that the, the one thing though is is that obviously there, there's a couple of things which is uh abuse is always when we say domestic abuse the first thing that comes to mind is always always physical um mm. but we also have to realize that it's not just physical it's also verbal it's also financial um psychological um and a lot of people will never cross that line of being physical or too physical uh, maybe a bit shoving or pushing in terms of striking it's it's probably something that a lot of people avoid because they fear the consequences because once you cross that line it's very clear but psychological financial and emotional abuse is something that is not you you doesn't it, it's metaphysical in a way it's you know it can't be touched mm-hmm. yeah financial yes um you know but all, even then it's hard to kind of really prove it because 
you're married and you have access to each other's accounts and they said it was okay um but when it comes to physical it's obviously it's a bit more obvious so that that's one thing but also another thing is is that um in terms of the reported abuses only only 62 percent are attributed to women the other let's do the maths here uh, the other 38 percent are actually against men Hmm. and that usually shocks a lot of people and you were talking about the asian community and i was saying about how they're catching up with women's abuse and kind of dealing with it the men's though is is the next you know is the kind of elephant in the room which they're missing completely yeah um and and i've helped people who have gone through you know as i said with the from a uh, uh, counseling point of view i've helped men who have gone through that abuse um Mm -hmm. um one who i know was actually married to a psychologist psychiatrist sorry and Mm -hmm they you know were psychologically abused um you know guilt guilt tripped and you know etc um used their weaknesses against them and it happens a lot yeah no i mean i've 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 come across a couple of cases myself just uh um just by the by you know um so if you are a innocent bystander for example how would you recognize someone is in trouble because it may well be that you know there's a threshold that certain women or men uh uh, will have to cross before they actually go and seek help but there may well be a lot of people under that threshold who are suffering um but don't go actively seeking help how would how would someone recognize uh someone who's in trouble so i mean anyone could google that really and find a whole bunch of symptoms but when it comes to practically i think it's it's almost impossible to know specifically and i think one of the reasons is is because depression especially during covid anxiety and depression have gone through the roof even before then though anxiety and depression you know, it, it's something that I, I see every week in my clinics. Um, you know, I, I will there'll be at least five to seven patients, who, and and we're not talking about the repeats, by the way. We're not talking about people who've come back because the anxiety is uncontrolled again. We're talking about new patients, mm-hmm. you know, who in some shape or form have anxiety or depression, and because of that the symptoms and signs are very similar one of them obviously are things like unexplained bruising um being very closed within their shells you know not really they seem to be very isolated from others but with the anxiety element of things it becomes very difficult because i know a lot of people who are anxious who are like that because going out the house actually is very difficult for them um and so i would say it's just very difficult I think the main thing is is whether you can recognize someone needs help and actually knowing that specifically from a domestic violence cause um is is very you know tricky so uh, what i would say is is that when you recognize someone who's who needs help um you know that you you don't know what the the possible cause could be but yeah those kinds of things are as i said isolating themselves um unexplained bruising um you know looking disheveled just not particularly keeping clean or hygienic 
you know, because they're going through this abuse, which kind of puts them really, almost puts them in a bubble, as if they're away from everyone. Um, and but a lot of those things you'll find nowadays as well with depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I mean, I personally, um, and I mentioned this on a recent interview that I did. I, I believe that we, I mean, obviously we've been going through COVID. We've had one hundred twenty thousand plus deaths. 120,000 you know families at least which have been affect, uh, affected um but i th- really believe that the real uh, epidemic is what's going to come now which is anxiety and depression due to covid you know i've seen uh, staff members who have in any other scenario i would have said they've got ptsd you know, uh, from having to care for these patients uh, who, you know, heartbreaking stories, um, things like that. And, you know, the general, um, you know, for example, uh, I mean, I mean, you know this as well as, uh, I mean, you're a GP, I'm an anaesthetist, so it's not my field. But you know that a lot of the things that you tell people about who have a depression or anxiety is to, you know, find a hobby, find something to do, go out, meet friends, you know, be sociable, you know, try and, you know, get yourself out of your own bubble. And yet we have been forced into a bubble uh, because of this uh, pandemic. Um, And so um, I, I really think that, you know, this, this is going to be the one, probably the biggest uh legacies of covid is we're going to have a basically a damaged generation of people now i read um i I hope i'm wrong i really do i really hope i'm wrong because that's not something i'd like to think about but i can see that happening yeah well the the thing is is you're not wrong because the reality is it's it's already happened um that's the truth the the one thing is 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 that It'll be blamed on COVID, but it was a completely under-diagnosed, underfunded area um, anyway. The mental health services were really struggling as it was before COVID even happened. And that was, you know, there were people who, you know, were were not coming to GPs or not getting the help that they needed, um, you know, and would be at home and struggle. And there'd be a lot of different reasons for that. Um, So... That was there. Now with COVID, yeah, it's, it's gone even worse. And you know, the the psycho- who the question is who's gonna who's going to um, give the support to the psychologists themselves? Yes, because I was going counselling them. Yeah, because I was going to uh, mention uh, to ask them. My next question was that this is a, obviously itself what you've been doing a very psychologically draining process um how have you managed to navigate through it and how has your family managed to because obviously it's going to have knock-on effects on uh you know your relationships um as well how have you managed to um in inverted commas stay sane through all this do you mean um, the covid no no i mean the uh i mean the um uh, the women's support. Okay. Um, my family have been, you know, 
absolutely fine. Um, my kids were too young to really realise, but even then they realised that when I was talking on the phone, um, you know, helping someone giving advice, that they wouldn't necessarily be allowed in the room just because of some of the things we talk about in terms of, you know, the the difficulties they've gone through. Yeah. My wife, alhamdulillah, she's, you know, always, she, she, I mean, she understands the importance of it. Um, you know, she understands that it's not something that she would want to go through and, you know, she... She, yeah, it, it's just, I think, really simple. It's just she understands the importance of it. She understands why I do it. She she lives with me. She, you know, we've been married for coming up to 20 years, not far from there now. Um, and, you know, she she kind of knows me. She knows who I am. And so with that, she knows exactly what I do behind closed doors, what I, you know, what I'm like when no one's seeing me. And she knows that part of this is all genuine and it's just you know it is what I'm doing for and the reason why I'm doing it so for her it wasn't much of an issue there was always a separation between this and family time so you know part of the difficulties of life is balancing everything together um, your your work your family your extracurricular activities the other extracurricular work that you have um, balancing it all but they've been you know patient with me when if I've not fulfilled that that balance in how it should be for me personally I, I've never I've never struggled with these kinds of things um, I mean I, I started helping people a long long time ago and yes initially I mean so it's been probably about 15 years that I've actually been helping people in general and that's literally going from just simple bits of advice here and there that everyone, you know, I guess that's for, as well as going further and, you know, when people take your advice and things seem to go okay, they kind of come back and all those kinds of things. So initially, yes, it did affect me when I was hearing these stories of just different people and their struggles. But, I mean, again, one of these things is as I've progressed on my spiritual journey and getting closer to God and learning more about Islam and all these things, um, the one thing that, you know, we're taught in the Quran, you know, from the first, you know, kind of page is the first real words in the Quran are Alif Lam Mim, and no one knows what they mean. And the power of that is basically, it starts off, you know, in a book, which is a, a lot of, well, a lot of Muslims will come to looking for answers, a lot of non-Muslims will come to looking for answers. And it starts off with three words which no one knows what they mean. And then it, it goes on to say that, you know, you have come to this book as a guidance. And the, the power and, you know, the genius of that is that it's telling you you don't know everything. Mm -hmm. And with these situations, we don't know everything. You know, and with being someone who believes in God, we... We like to think we have control, but we don't. We like to think we do know a lot. If we don't know everything, we know 99%. The truth is we don't. We mm -hmm. know about 2%. Mm -hmm. And so in the big play, in this big theater of life, how, how do we really know what what is good for someone, what is not? I mean, good and bad is a very, it's, a, it's very subjective and very, very much anthropomorphized thing that we see it from our perspective only. Um, we don't really see it from a, a, a bigger perspective because we don't have that. So knowing that on the day of judgment as a Muslim, on the day of judgment that 
God will compensate these people for their difficulties that they've gone through, not just equally, but times 10. And, you know, these people who have done these bad things, their whatever good deeds they have or whatever positives they have will be taken away from them equal and beyond what, you know, they have mm-hmm. remaining. And it'll go to these you know, people who they've transgressed, you know, their, their honor and their rights. And so with all of that, I, that's a perspective which I think a lot of Muslims know in their head, but they don't really know in their hearts. Because when it comes through to the times when they have to exercise those ideas, they struggle too. Um, it, it's just one of the, the things that I haven't struggled with. And it's just one of, I guess, if you want, the strengths that I've had. But we all have strengths and weaknesses in different ways and different amounts. So if that's a strength I have, I, again, it's going back to God and just thanking him that I have that. At the same time, there's weaknesses that we all have that we need to work on. And so this has just been one of mine. And it's allowed me to then you know, do this. And it's one of the reasons why I actually wanted to go into pediatrics initially, um, which was that the children's suffering, although how difficult it is, that perspective allows me, I knew it would allow me to carry on regardless. You know, it wouldn't put me off being a pediatrician. I, I don't think, I think it would take a lot for me to struggle from something like PTSD because of what you're seeing with these children. Um, so, you know, it's one of the reasons. And it, it's it's one of those things, as I said, you use your strengths to for what you can. And your weaknesses, you do your best to make well minimize them or make them into strengths themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you mentioned that um, this has been a transformative, almost spiritual kind of experience for you. Uh, could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, well I think it, it was basically so, from what I was saying, um, there's a lot of greys in there, and it's not just a black and white thing. Um, there's a lot of greys and I guess as time has gone on that grey has become I, I guess if you want to put it more white in terms of when I'm less affected by what people go through um, you know being someone who generally has a lot of compassion for people um, I you know I, I initially as I said I it used to be a struggle listening to some of these stories but um, I, th- I think it's, it's that positivity that I'm able to bring because of that, because of that transformative element, which also impacts onto the people that I help. And I think that that's a big thing as well. Every day, I mean, there's a great book by, uh, I think it's Daniel Kahneman, called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And it's a great book about studies, I think it was studies done in America, I think in 1940s or so, um, about the psychology of people and their minds. And it's a really fascinating book because they talk about, for example, one experiment where people are um, reading a piece of paper and it's got things like dementia, arthritis, um, frail, and things like that. Then they walk down this hall and then there's a piece of paper and it's got words like youth, exuberance, um, energy, things like that. Now, the study of it was actually not the reading, but the walking down the hall. Those people who, who were in group A and read the first words first... When they walked down the hall, they walked very slowly, and they walked as if almost depressed, really, um, very slowly, as if they didn't have any particular focus. Well, the people who read Group B first, you know, the youth, words of youth, exuberance, etc., energy, they would walk down the hall with purpose and with speed and with a bounce. And so even words that we read, 
just prior to doing an action can affect us. You know, and this is what the studies show, and then they go into even deeper things, you know, in terms of the studies. So even a smile, you don't know how much that could affect someone. And so actually it's one of those things of you leave in God's hands and you just, you know, you do what you can. And the, the, the result is from God. And mm -hmm. so you know, a smile to someone, um, a little show of just giving someone a bit of chocolate, you just you just don't know how much of a difference it can make in someone's life for whatever reason, because we don't really know what they're going through necessarily. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I mean, that's a really um, uh, uplifting and uh, uh, amazing talk. And, you know, Alhamdulillah, that we have people like you and mashallah that, you know, uh, for well, the work that you've done, and may Allah reward you. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, the truth is, though, is that, you know, when we talk about things like the smile, hmm. that is what the Prophet ﷺ told us to do. Yeah, that famous hadith, that, a smile, even a smile and, is charity. Yeah, and even, you know, helping people in the way we're helping people and so forth. Um, all of it is actually what the Prophet has taught us. So it's not men like me, it's men like the Prophet yeah. you know, who, you know, when you really look at his message in a, in a, clear light through a clear window without you know these voices that come in and try and really disrupt the reality of him if you know people did their own research they would see actually that this is just all him mm -hmm. and this is you know his this is his gift to us mm -hmm. to be you know to show us how to be you know in these situations so it's all from him and obviously from god who gave us the prophetism yeah um if there are anybody if there's anybody listening who feels that they need to reach out and get help, um, where would you uh, advise them to go at the moment? I understand. I know you've said that you've you've had taken a bit of a backseat. The Alamira Foundation has unfortunately closed. Where would you advise people to go? Um, I mean that there's there's women's aid. Um, there's there's a lot of places, and to be honest, I, there's not one I would particularly. Um, you know, say that would be a definite. Um, I do know of someone, um, there's a sister actually who did contact me, um, who's in Birmingham, and they've been working with the council in Birmingham, mm -hmm. um, and they've been kind of, you know, helping out over there. So they, they've got a, a, you know, a thing set up with the Birmingham council. I'm just going to try and see if I can find it. I mean, I've got it here somewhere, <laughs> but... Um, Yes, I'll just try and find out. And the, the, it may be helpful, it may not be, because only because actually you'd be you know, surprised that the people who generally, um, you know, are based in Birmingham or, or the surrounding area, they don't want to kind of be in the surrounding area, obviously because of what they've gone through. Yeah. So, you know, they prefer to move at least to Wolverhampton or maybe further. But their domestic abuse helpline, is I, I could give the number out, which is 07542-513-099. Or you can email them at referrals at birminghamhousing.co.uk. And that's the Iman Domestic Abuse Service. And as I said, there's someone who you know, are, I think, as far as I know, they're linked to Birmingham Council. And they, you know, they, they've got all 
kinds of things available. Like, uh, you know, they've got 40, uh, I think it's 46 bed uh, furnished ensuite accommodation for single mothers and babies. You know, they've got people who speak uh, multiple languages so that they, you know, can obviously, uh, the, the communication is clear, um, all these kinds of things. So, yeah. Um, that's someone who I know personally, and I know they set this up genuinely to help as many people as they could. So that's one that may not be so well known as others. Okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time, Fahad. Uh, it's like been a, a pleasure talking to you. It's been quite inspirational as well. Um, sure. I, I suppose it shows us all that um, Islam is not just praying five times a day, um fasting um this that and the other it is the service of humanity um and in the service of humanity you are serving god um and it's these kinds of things which make you you know to use layman's terms or be blunt a better person so uh uh thank you very much for uh, uh joining us um and uh, uh, i hope uh, you know your endeavors uh, provide good fr- uh, fruit and help uh, for uh, the people that you've helped thanks a lot uh, thanks for joining us this evening pleasure take care okay take a bye welcome